0: Now the conclusion of Guido de Montefeltro's amazing monologue in comedy. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast in which we slow walk and we slow walk on slow walk through Dante's masterwork, comedy. And we are here toward the back of Inferno itself. We're in Canto 27. In this episode, we're going to be at lines 112 through 136. We are in the eighth circle of fraud. We are in the eighth of the evil pouches of the malabolcha that make up this giant circle of fraud. And we have already seen Ulysses in this pit. And then he passed on and we saw this figure, Guido de Montefeltro, appear, a warlord from Romagna who tried to convert to being a Franciscan friar to save his soul, but got, according to him, yanked back to doing evil because of Pope Boniface VIII. We got Guido all the way up in the last episode to his slide back into being an underhanded trickster, and now we are going to continue and finish the canto with the death of Guido de Montefeltro. When I died, Francis came for me, but one of the black cherubim said to him, Hands off this one, don't wrong me now, down he goes among the legions of my slaves because of his fraudulent counsel, ever since that moment I've been waiting to snatch him by the hair. If a guy doesn't repent, he can't be pardoned, and he can't repent a thing yet still want it. That's a contradiction that won't stand. What a load of sorrow I am. How I came to with a shock when he grabbed me, saying, Perhaps you never imagined I'd be versed in logic. He carried me down to Minos, who curled his tail eight times around his hard back. then biting it in his tremendous wrath, he said, This one deserves the thieving fire. In other words, I'm lost forever, just as you see me down here. In these fiery vestments, I make my way steeped in bitter regret. When it said no more and turned silent, the sorrowing flame took its leave, tossing and flickering its pointed horn. We then made our way, my guide and I, up along the escarpment and to the high arch that goes over the next ditch, in which those who load up by pulling things apart pay their toll. What a conclusion. A Fight for a Soul, Demons, St. Francis. Man, this passage has got it all. We're going to look at what the demon actually says, and then we're going to look at the damnation of Guido. And at the last, we'll turn to the final lines of the poem as Dante and Virgil turn away. So let's get to it. After that long speech, in which Guido essentially tries to justify himself and push all culpability off himself for his actions, we get this sudden turn. If you remember in the last speech, we came to this moment in which he counsels Pope Boniface VIII to essentially promise a lot and deliver very little. And, you know, that's the way to succeed from your throne. And then the very next line is when I died and the the transition there is really abrupt. I think that that's part of the art of the passage. We'll talk about that in a minute, but I do think that that is part of the art of the passage itself, the abrupt transitions inside of it. Guido de Montefeltro did die in September of 1298. So just before, just a little before, a year and six months before the date at which the comedy is allegedly happening. Which this journey across the known universe is allegedly happening. I should point out a couple things about this opening bit of the passage. First, I want to talk about the black cherub. This is the second highest order of angels. If you remember back in the pit of the Barrators in Canto 23, we did have black angels, but they weren't necessarily designated as cherubim. Why suddenly the designation of cherubim? It could be because Aquinas claims that the cherubim, the second highest order of angels, were very learned angels, scholarly angels. And while Dante himself in another piece of his writing claims that demons, fallen angels, cannot philosophize because philosophy is based on love, they cannot do logic. And that is certainly what's going on in this passage. And it may be that this fellow is a cherub to emphasize his logical abilities, his intellectual provenance. He says, hands off this one, don't wrong me down. He goes among the legions of my slaves because he gave fraudulent counsel. Now we know what is punished in this pit, the eighth pit. If you remember in that interview with J. Simon Harris in his translation of Inferno, he brought up the point that when Virgil maps out hell in Canto 11 of Inferno, he doesn't name this pit. He never says what's going to happen down inside this pit. It's one of the pits that remains unnamed. And we might not know what's going on here if this demon hadn't so, uh, what am I going to say, summarized the sin, fraudulent, counsel, and so you may think it's settled, but it's not. What is fraudulent counsel? Is fraudulent counsel telling lies? I don't think so. I don't think that Guido tells any lies to Pope Boniface VIII, and I don't think Ulysses tells any lies to his crew. Is it using words to goad other people on to doing evil? Maybe it goads Boniface on to the destruction of the Colonna family, and it goads Ulysses' sailors on to their own death. Is it using words in a certain way to try to absolve yourself? After all, even though Guido is promised absolution from his sins in advance, what he says, promise a lot, but deliver very little, or promise more, but deliver less, or something like that, what he actually says is very opaque. He still seems to be trying to cover his own butt with that statement. I mean, you could take that in a lot of ways if you were Boniface. So is that what fraudulent count? is it's it's kind of using language to conceal yourself to conceal your true motives that would certainly be true for Ulysses believe it or not this term fraudulent counsel has bedeviled commentators for 700 years it seems to settle the score but what exactly is that is Guido's counsel fraudulent it, what it seems to me, and what I always think, is that fraudulent counsel, uh, it is words that lead to the death of others. But you should know that even that would be highly contested by scholars, as well as something else in this passage. The reference to Francis. When I died, Francis came to me. There is so much discomfort amongst the commentators with this scene. Think about this. Here's this guy. He's converted to being a Franciscan friar to make up for his past evils as a mercenary warlord. Here comes Francis for him. <laughs> Two things. Doesn't Francis know that Guido is damned? What? Francis didn't know? So St. Francis comes down and going to carry off one of his own friars up into heaven, and he doesn't know that, that Guido is is damned. Two, the early commentators are very discontented with the idea that Francis could be beaten by a demon. Does that seem right to you? I should also tell you that early commentators are very uneasy with the offhanded reference to a great saint. Oh, when I died, Francis came for me. uh, (laughs) Of course, like as if I, you know, I told you, uh, we had dinner the other night. Of course, uh, I don't know. who Who could I see. We had dinner the other night. Tom Cruise was here. Right, this is an offhanded reference, as if it's no big deal. Okay, it's that. Many early commentators are very uncomfortable with that kind of offhanded reference to Francis. This is a great saint. Dante should be more reverent. Many commentators complain of Dante's irreverence here. Is it Dante's? is this a factor of Guido de Montefeltro? Is it really his irreverence? I mean, after all, he's the one talking, and you could maybe put a wedge here between Guido and Dante and say that the irreverence toward the great saint of Francis is coming from Guido, not from Dante. But you should know that the early commentators don't see that wedge between Guido and Dante, and they very much complain about the, shall we say, casual reference to such a great modern commentators have in fact tried to solve this by saying that essentially Guido is making all of this up. Guido has tried to justify himself. And when he comes to tell of his actual death, and you'll notice that we see Guido's actual death in the same way that we see Ulysses' actual death. When Guido comes to tell the story of his actual death, he aggrandizes it. And he tells this story, which we should see as what do I want to say fantasy, made up, self justifying. Oh, I'm so big that St. Francis even came for my soul. We should see this as fraudulent, as a lie, as made up because of the offhanded reference to Francis. It's too casual. It's too off the cuff. I am not sure because the battles for souls between angels and demons is a common story in medieval lit. And because it is a common piece of medieval street theater, it strikes me that Dante is daring all kinds of theological problems here in order to get the comedy into this story. Because after all, this is a very funny ending. And if Guido is using this ending of his life, his death, to prove how important he is All it does is prove what an idiot he is. The demon says, if a guy doesn't repent, he can't be pardoned and he can't repent a thing yet still want it. That's a contradiction that won't stand. What basically this demon is saying is that conversion or repentance demands a before and an after. And Guido himself doesn't have a before and an after. If you don't repent something, then you can't be pardoned for it. There's no before and after. You can't repent a thing and still want it. There's no before and after. And you'll notice that the Pope promised Guido a preemptive pardon. That is no before or after. And it is the very thing this demon hones in on inside of conversion or repentance, there is a temporality. You tell what happened before, you tell the moment of conversion, and then you tell your life after that St. Augustine's Confessions. That is the nature of the confessio topos, which we discussed in the last episode of this podcast. And yet here, the revelation is that there isn't a possible revelation because there is no temporality inside the story. And if you remember, Guido's story is messed up in its temporality. He tells the ending before he tells the full story. (laughs) I think this all must be on purpose. I think we're seeing Dante as incredibly smart about what he's doing. Let's pass out to Guido's last words. Oh, what a load of sorrow I am. How I came to with a shock when he grabbed me, saying, perhaps you never imagined I'd be versed in logic. And I think we're really supposed to laugh at that. I mean, here the demon is schooling Guido on logic and how logic works. If a guy doesn't repent, can't be pardoned. You can't repent something and still want to do it. You can't do all that. So... I'm really good at ferreting out the logic here of theology. I may not be able to philosophize because I don't have any love in me, according to Dante, but man, I can still reason it out. One more curious thing about this passage, and it's how Guido describes his uh, a realization. He says, oh, what a load of sorrow I am, how I came to with a shock when he, the black cherub, grabbed me. I step to stop right there. Came to with a shock. That is the same phrase used in Inferno, Canto 4, line 2, to describe Dante, Coming awake after he has fainted at the sight or words of Karen and his boat on the very shores of hell, came to with a shock. This is another way that Dante and Guido are linked. They both come to with a shock, with a shudder, with a sharp jab. And I think that that's important because we're talking here about Guido. Going to hell. We're talking about his going down to Minos in the same way that Dante at the crossing of Acheron on Karen's boat is coming into hell. And the same words are used, and they both come to with a shock. Dante's subsequent actions are fully different from Guido's. They are not the same, and yet there are ways in which they are. Oddly and uniquely linked to each other in the same ways that Ulysses and Dante are linked to each other. He carries him down to Minos, who we remember who sits up there with his tail. Minos curls his tail eight times around his back. We're in the eighth pit of fraud, then biting it in his tremendous wrath. We want to talk about that, he said. This one deserves the thieving fire. Ah, well, there you go. This, the Minos is is the one who judges him. They get, apparently gets tossed off the ledge as they all do and end up down here. You know, it's interesting that this demon picks up Guido and carries him to Minos because if you remember, the black devils in the pit of the barrators somehow bypass Minos. In Canto 21, lines 37 through 39, the black devil arrives with a barrater hooked through the Achilles tendon, essentially, and throws him into the pitch. And I said to you, what happened to Minos? Well it seems as if we've backed back up here and now we've got Minos again. You might say that's an inconsistency in the poem. And perhaps it is an inconsistency in the poem, but Dante is writing a poem a piece of art he's not writing a logical track now you can also say that dante here makes a joke about logic and then shows a logic fault in his poem Minos, in this case but not with the black devils back in canto 21. i think That might even be too smart an answer for Dante. It just seems a little far-fetched to me, but eh, it could be there. You'll notice that Minos bites his tail, bites it in tremendous wrath and says, this one deserves thieving fire. This is the third time this has happened. This biting of yourself in order to be enraged. Filippo Argenti. Bites himself amongst the wrathful in Canto 8, line 61 through 63. And the Minotaur on that scree filled slope bites himself in Canto 12, line 14. This is now a recurrent theme. And this is one of the ways that Dante himself organizes or unifies his work. He begins to pick up images and repeat them. And we're starting to see this. We've come far enough in Inferno that we can start to see that Dante is sewing his work together by repeating imagery. And one of the repeated images here is the biting of yourself out of wrath. You have no place to put your wrath, so you turn it on yourself and bite yourself. Oh my gosh. Could there be any truer psychological bit then in the end, you don't have any place to put your wrath. So you end up chewing on yourself. <laughs> what can I tell you? All right, let's look at Guido's very last words. I'm lost forever, Guido says, as you see me down here. In these fiery vestments, I make my way steeped in bitter regret. The fiery vestments is a reference to the tongue of fire wrapped up in this kind of clothing, cloaked like this, I could have said. I make my way steeped in bitter regret. Finally, truly, Guido is hidden All of his life he's tried to exist as an underhanded political operator through subterfuges, and here finally at the very last, in the final irony, he is truly hidden down inside this flame, cloaked in a way that we can't really see him. We can only hear him as his tongue makes the top of the flame sputter. But one more thing. I make my way steeped in bitter regret. I told you there is something incredibly human about Guido. Ulysses may almost be inhuman, so classically heroic, it's hard to see the human down in there. Not with Guido. I make my way steeped in bitter regret. And we have this vision of Guido for the rest of eternity, wandering around this pit inside a flame full of remorse. Man, I repented. I tried to get my life back on the right track. Maybe I wasn't completely, uh, what do I want to say, completely pure in my motives, but I tried and then the Pope called me and down I went. Tate still doesn't take any credit or any guilt for his actions. And yet, at the same time, he is very human. And this is one of the things that's so intriguing about the Guido speech it is poignant. It is funny, the devil. You didn't think I had no logic, did you? The fight for the soul. There's about a low street comedy from medieval plays going on there. It's full of rage. I mean, he wants to damn Pope Boniface to hell, which apparently will happen. It's poignant My in the flesh and bones my mother gave me. All of these things are true about Guido's story. And if Ulysses' story is extremely straightforward and a heroic tale of a quest for that which cannot be found or shouldn't be found or you will be sent to hell if you try to find it, this story ranges all over the place in terms of its tonality from funny to street comedy to rage to poignancy. So intriguing that Guido's speech is so hurdy-gurdy, swapping from one moment to the next throughout it. Let's take a look at the last lines of Canto 27. When it said no more in turns out the sorrowing flame took its leave, tossing and flickering its pointed horn... We then made our way, my guide and I, up along the escarpment to the high arch that goes over to the next ditch in which those who load up by pulling things apart pay their toll. Okay, two things. One, you'll notice that Guido arrived muttering to itself. The flame was sputtering when it came up in the early parts of Canto 27, and it goes away in the same way. I picture Guido as constantly complaining to himself, why am I here? How did I get here? What happened to me? He still doesn't seem to really get it. He doesn't get that he led to the massacre of a family, to the destruction of their personal property, their castle, which you know for Dante is always in act of terrible violence to destroy property as well as people. We know this from the circles of the violent. He still doesn't understand that being a fox, as he puts it, is actually worse than being a lion. A lion would be a military leader who essentially offs a bunch of people and ends up in the seventh circle of hell with the violent. But a fox, in terms of inferno, is actually worse Wily, corrupt, backhanded, full of subterfuges, full of concealments. He didn't get it. He just leaves muttering to himself. And then we finish off the canto. We made our way, um, my guide and I, up along the escarpment into the high arch that goes over the next ditch in which those who load up by pulling things apart pay their toll. I should tell you that this is a very tricky metaphor in the medieval Florentine. Basically, what it says is people who get a lot of cargo by destroying things by pulling things apart. It's it's as if it's as if somebody's a pirate and they pull things apart in order to load up their own boat. That's not quite the metaphor in the Florentine, but it kind of has that logic. And then it has this idea of paying their toll. So again, it has this kind of piracy entertainment method that goes on. It's a very strange, twisted way to describe the sinners of the next pit. You should know that a lot of translators just go ahead and uh, essentially look forward and jump over this difficult metaphor. They just say, you know, okay, we go, we got up to the arts that goes over the next ditch where there were all the schismatics. Well, that's who's there, but that's not what the text says. You're jumping over a very tricky metaphor about cargo and tolls and pulling things apart. You're skipping over that tricky metaphor to get to the next people, to make it clearer, the next centers in the next pitch. But I think it's really important to know. That this entire cantos of fraudulent counselors with Ulysses and Guido, the slippery oily Ulysses and the slippery oily Guido ends with a very difficult metaphor in the Florentine, one that it takes a great deal of learning to pull apart, one that you can think about for a very long time, and one that itself is concealing, that is opaque, that hides kind of what it's about while at the same time discussing what it's about. I mean, we're about to come to the schismatics, people who cause deliberate schism, particularly in the church, but also beyond the church, who cause sedition and schism for their own gain. It's really important to see that all of this bit about fraudulent counsel Ends with a very difficult phrase in the Florentine that takes a lot of puzzling that is difficult to pull apart, and in the end, it ends on an act I would even argue of concealment. And maybe that is the point of fraudulent counsel, maybe that is the final bit that is, I have hidden my true motives, but I've also hidden my true self, I've hidden it away from you so you'll do what I want. That is so certainly the case with Guido, and it's probably the case with Ulysses. Before we finish off this episode of the podcast, Walking with Dante, let's just read my translation of Guido's entire monologue. You can find this on my website, MarkScarborough.com or WalkingWithDante.com. You can also drop a comment there. I'm not going to do any voices this time. I'm just going to read it straight through. I'm going all the way back to line 58 of Canto 27 and reading Guido's incredible monologue about his own damnation and death. After the flame had raised a ruckus in its own way for a bit, the sharp point moved back and forth, then gave its breath to this. If I were to believe that my answer was crafted for someone who might go back to the world above, this flame would stand here without even a sputter. But because none ever gets out of this pit and makes it back to life, at least if what I hear is true, then I can reply without any fear of getting shamed." I was a military guy, but then got courted as a Franciscan, believing, cinched up like that, that I could make amends. And I'm sure my beliefs would have worked out on my behalf had it not been for the great priest. I hope he gets it bad. He sent me right back to my old tricks. I want you to hear the how and the why. While I was still formed from the bones and flesh my mother gave me, My work wasn't like a lion, more like a fox. All the underhanded ways and the subterfuges, well, I knew them, was even skilled in their art, so much so that my fame rang out all over my home turf. When I saw that I had come to that part of my life when a guy should pull in the ropes of his sails and wind up his rigging, what had pleased me in the past began to bug me. So having repented and confessed, I did an about-face, and... uh, wretch that i am it should have done the trick but the prince of the new pharisees had a war on hand in the lateran not against the saracens or the jews mind you oh no this one's enemies were other christians not even some guy who'd gone off to vanquish acre nor one who wanted to traffic in the sultan's holdings he didn't even hold his office sacred or other church orders or even my holy cord the sort that used to make the ones who wore it emaciated. But as Constantine once sought out Sylvester up on Montessorate to cure him of leprosy, so this one called me in as a physician to heal his feverish pride. He asked my counsel, and I kept quiet because his speech sounded like rank drunkenness. Then he went on, "'Don't let your heart be troubled. I grant you absolution before anything happens.' Now you can let me know how to raise Palastrina to the ground. As you know, I can lock and unlock heaven itself because of this pair of keys that my predecessor didn't value properly. I thought his weighty argument so pushed me on that my silence seemed the worst way to go. So I said, Father, since you wash me clean of the sin into which I'm going to fall, promise a lot, but deliver far less. That's how to triumph from your exalted throne. When I died, Francis came for me, but one of the black cherubim said to him, hands off this one, don't wrong me now, down he goes among the legions of my slaves because he gave fraudulent counsel. Ever since that moment, I've been waiting to snatch him by the hair. If a guy doesn't repent, he can't be pardoned, and he can't repent a thing yet still want it, that's a contradiction that won't stand. Oh, what a load of sorrow I am. How I came to with a shock when he grabbed me, saying, Perhaps you never imagined I'd be versed in logic. He carried me down to Minos, who curled his tail eight times around his hard back. Then, biting it in his tremendous wrath, he said, This one deserves the thieving fire. In other words, I'm lost forever, just as you see me down here. In these fiery vestments, I make my way steeped in bitter regret when it said no more and turned silent the sorrowing flame took its leave tossing and flickering its pointed horn we then made our way my guide and i up along the escarpment into the high arch that goes over the next ditch in which those who load up by pulling things apart pay their toll We've got one more episode here amongst the fraudulent counselors, because I would like to do a compare and contrast episode on Ulysses and Guido. We've kind of talked around it and we've talked about what that might mean, but I want to do a full on exploration of the ways that Ulysses and Guido de Montefeltro are linked with each other and the way they're differentiated from each other. So that's up in the next episode of this podcast. You got to subscribe, rate it, please. I would really appreciate a rating on whatever platform you're listening to this on particularly apple podcasts or audible i would so appreciate that and come back one more time with the fraudulent counselors because hey we can't get enough of this stuff can we i don't think so i'm mark scarborough this is walking with dante i'll see you soon